0: Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 10 and we're going to read the rest of the chapter today together. Hear now God's word. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Jesus, if you apply yourself to every piece of our salvation, from our conversion to our growing in maturity, to bringing us into glory. I pray that you would attend to us now, that you would apply all those means of grace to us, that we might hear your word, understand it, believe it, and obey it. Would you do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's interesting to read this passage today because two weeks ago we were at the very beginning of chapter two and we got this working metaphor for the Christian life. We said that our salvation is like a rope dangling in a raging river and we're being called upon to hold fast to it lest we drift away. Now here we are later in the chapter, and actually what we're going to understand today is that Jesus begins this journey of salvation and builds it like an unbreakable chain. It's something that he sets in motion and something that he's going to bring to completion. You get two very different pictures in the exact same chapter of the Bible. On the one hand, you have a warning, be careful, watch out, make sure your faith is true. And on the other hand, you have this assurance of your salvation, rest in Jesus, know that he's the one who saves you. And you're kind of working with these two images. On the one hand, we understand that we as a church family are going to walk on this journey of faith until Jesus comes again. And the cold, hard reality is there will be people who come into our midst who call themselves Christians, who do this thing for a while, and then they spin off into unbelieving oblivion. They don't walk with Christ until the end. And passages like chapter three, verse 12 are a stern warning, case in point. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. That's a warning That falls on all of us, and that's absolutely true. Watch out. But on the other hand, you get this impression that from texts like ours, that our salvation is a foregone conclusion in the sovereign economy of God. That what Jesus has started, he's also going to finish. So why are we even talking about it? And that is also true. So you have this play in scripture between warnings and assurances. You're, you're being called upon to hold fast and to be careful and you're being called upon to rest in what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. Warnings and assurances and what is a preacher to do when you have both of these? I think there's a way to take a warning and an assurance and kind of smash it together and so you don't end up saying anything at any given point. Anytime you get a passage of warning in the scriptures, like Hebrews, you say this is a warning, but it's not really a warning because Jesus assures us of our salvation. And so it doesn't come across as a warning. And those in our congregation who are living in unrepentant sin, those who are saying, I'm walking this way, and Jesus is calling me to walk this way, and I don't want to hear anything more about it, we don't have any warning to apply to that person because we've smashed these two things together. There's nothing to say to the unrepentant Christian. The same thing happens in assurance. We can read a wonderful passage of assurance like we're going to read today, but then we could end up saying it's not really an assurance because some people are going to call themselves Christians and they're not Christians, and so there's nothing to be assured of. And when you do that, when you smash them together, the wrong people pick up the wrong message and they take it in the wrong direction. What are we supposed to do? How can we get in the front end of this chapter and the back end of this chapter and take both of these things seriously? I think the way to do this is to preach and understand each passage as it comes to us. When we hit a warning in Hebrews, let's understand it as a warning. Let's pay attention to what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. And when we hit a word of assurance, let's receive and rest in that word of assurance. And if both of those things make us pay more careful attention to our salvation, that's only a good thing, right? That drives us to Jesus. Whether you're being warned or you're being assured, both of those things, when done rightly, they drive us to Jesus and to the salvation that we have in him. Well, today, we get one of those assurance passages. We get a wonderful word of hope in the second half of this chapter, and it's going to build for us what we're going to call an unbreakable chain of salvation. We're going to see some things that are linked together that can't possibly be broken. Now, what I mean by that, what I mean about that unbreakable chain is simply that Jesus finishes what he starts if Jesus begins something, he's going to finish that thing. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If Jesus leads you to himself in salvation, he's going to lead you into glory. Now, Paul, when he builds this chain of salvation, he starts before the foundations of the world. But we're not talking about Paul right now. We're focused in the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to start with our conversion. When a person is converted, when a person is born again, things are set in motion that can't be undone. A person is converted, that person will then grow into Christian maturity, and that will look very different for all of us, and then that person will also be received into eternal glory with Jesus. We've got some very big theological words that we get from our Bible that we put on these three links in the chain and they are justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is our conversion. Sanctification is our growth in Christ. Glorification is when we are received into eternal glory. And what we're hearing from Hebrews is these things are inevitable. There is no such thing as a person who is truly converted who doesn't also mature in Christ. And there's no such thing as a person who is maturing in Christ who doesn't also enter the new heavens and the new earth. Justification will lead to sanctification, which will lead to glorification. This thing is not a buffet. You don't come and pick the pieces or the parts that you're going to participate in. This thing is more like a feeding tube. It's inevitable. This is thrust upon us, and this is going to happen in our lives. Now, Hebrews, it presents this chain. It presents all these links in the chain, But interestingly, Hebrews presents it in the reverse order. Starts with glorification, the end, and ends with justification, the beginning. And it's almost the writer to the Hebrews way of saying, this thing is so sure in the economy of God, it doesn't even matter which end of the chain you pick up. You want to start with heaven? We can start there. You want to start at a person's conversion? We can start there. Either direction, this thing is absolutely assured in the economy of God. What I want us to do very briefly is just to walk through each of these links in the order and the way that Hebrews presents them to us. And I want us to understand these all the more. Writer to the Hebrews, he starts with glorification. You need to know as a Christian that Jesus will bring you to glory. You need to know that. You need to understand that from verse 10. It was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. If the entire universe, if everything we see and can't see was created by Jesus and for Jesus, I don't foresee a lot of problems in Jesus proving good on his word. He says he's going to bring every believer to glory. He's going to bring every believer to glory. You can be assured in your glorification. Let's take a step back to sanctification. What's happening now in many of our lives if we're a Christian, if you're a Christian, Sanctification is the awkward period between justification when you were converted and glorification when you finally get into heaven and walk in the streets of gold in the new Jerusalem. Sanctification asks the question that my kids ask the moment we're doing done doing something incredibly awesome. That is, what's next? What are we doing now? What's happening next? What's going on? That's kind of the question that sanctification asks, right? Because Once you're converted, once you're born again, once you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, all kinds of things begin to happen. You're filled with his Holy Spirit. You're declared righteous before God. The Bible says you're seated in the heavenly places. You're going to share in the reign and the inheritance of Christ, but you kind of rub your eyes and look, and it still feels like I'm here on this earth walking in this same job with this same family and my AC is broken at my house. Like, literally, that's what's happening with me. And so, what's next? I mean, this is not quite the glory that I thought I was going to participate in. You're finding yourself in the exhausting netherworld called sanctification. This is what's happening in sanctification. Jesus is making you what you already are. You've been declared these things that are true of you in your glorified state. Now, in this time of maturing, you're becoming what you are. You're putting off the old things that you once were in your previous life, and you are putting on the new things that Jesus is making true of you in this new life. In other words, you're dying to the flesh, and you're living to the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a very common mistake we make about this period of sanctification. We understand that Jesus has everything to do with our justification, right? He dies on the cross and wins our salvation. We understand that Jesus is going to tidy everything up in the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to come again and bring us to glory. That's all Jesus in the beginning and the end. But sanctification feels like it's a whole lot of our responsibility, right? This is kind of our time to shine in the middle where we're doing the work of maturing ourselves in Christ. This is Jesus, that's Jesus, this is kind of us in the middle. And verse 11 clears that right up. That couldn't be further from the truth because it says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. In other words, Jesus is actually the one who is sanctifying and we're on the receiving end of sanctification. We're being the one sanctified. In the same way our salvation is a gift and our glorification is a gift, so also our sanctification is a gift from God. This role, this time, this season, this journey, this pilgrim's progress that we're enduring right now, that we think has so much to do with us, is really chock full of all the things that Jesus is doing on our behalf. I mean, look at our passage. There's a huge list here. Number one, verse 11, Jesus is going to treat us as family. He calls us siblings, brothers and sisters. Number two, verse 14, Jesus destroys the work of the devil. Number three, verse 15, Jesus delivers us from the slavery of being afraid to die. Number four, verse 16, Jesus helps us. Number five, verse 18, Jesus meets us in our temptation. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Remember that he's writing to a church that's very discouraged. They're very beaten down. In fact, they're tempted to give up on their salvation. They want to put down the cross of Jesus and follow another way. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews says about this journey of sanctification that they're in. You need to understand that there is absolutely no point in the Christian life in which Jesus is standing on the sidelines with his arms crossed, waiting to see how you will perform in your Christian life. He's not nitpicking your performance on the field. He's not whispering to somebody next to him saying, I wish they would have done this or been like this or been a lot more like this person. There is absolutely no moment in the Christian life in which Jesus is standing from afar. You heard this entire list. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, at every point, Jesus is on the field and he is engaged. Whether that's in massive ways, like dismantling the work of the devil, or that's in small, intimate ways, like visiting us in every moment we experience temptation, Jesus at every single point in our sanctification is present and engaged with what is happening with us. He is the one who sanctifies, we're just the ones who are being sanctified. Glorification, sanctification, now the beginning of this process, justification, our conversion. I've been using that word justification because that's the most popular word in the Bible to describe what happens. It's a very Pauline word, he loves the word justification, and it simply means that we're declared righteous before God. That when we convert, when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus alone for our salvation, God takes our sin off of us and places it on his son, Jesus, who pays the penalty for that sin. And he takes Jesus's righteousness and he puts that on us and imputes that to us. When we stand as a believer before God, we stand completely and entirely forgiven because of the work of Christ. And we stand perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. That's our justification. That's what happens at the very beginning. But in verse 17, our writer is actually using a different word. And in my ESV Bible, that word is being translated propitiation. Now, if you guys are taking notes, you already have a gospel glossary going because we're talking about these massive words, all these things. And now we get to propitiation, which in our passage simply means substitution. You heard the writer to the Hebrews making such a big deal to say that Jesus partook of flesh and blood just like us. He was made like us in every respect. And the point of, of saying all this about Jesus becoming a 100% man is to make the point that he is our propitiation. He is our substitution. That God's wrath and anger and judgment that should fall on us because we're the ones who have offended a holy God and lived in the way we wanted to live now falls on Jesus, our substitute. He becomes the propitiation for our sins. So we read in the very same passage that Jesus is not only the merciful and faithful high priest, but he's also the sacrifice itself. Jesus is a son of Aaron. He stands before the temple and before the altar in his vestly garments, and yet he is also a son of the herd. He's the lamb that climbs up on the altar to be sacrificed. This this invitation, it stands for all humanity. Any person, no matter where we come from, no matter what our background is, no matter what we did this morning or said to somebody this week or the things that we have buried in our deepest and darkest closets, for every single human being, this offer stands. God says, my wrath is upon you because of your sin and you will be judged for that. But because I love the world, I've offered Jesus as a substitute. If you will trust in him, confess your sins and run to him and believe in him for your salvation, the wrath that would fall on you now falls on the substitute. John the Baptist, when he was preparing for the coming of Jesus and he first saw Jesus, he said, what? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He could have said, behold, our propitiation, but no one would have understood him. This is so much better. Jesus is our justification and our propitiation. He's the one who declares us righteous. He's the one that substitutes for us. He is the one who makes us clean forever. He does justify. What Jesus starts, he's going to finish. It becomes this chain that can't possibly be broken. If he justifies us, he's going to sanctify us, and he's going to glorify us, and those are all inevitable in what God is doing in our lives. Now here's maybe the dark irony or the underside of this unbreakable chain of salvation, and that is... For all of us who hear this, even this morning as we walk through this chain and understand what Jesus does on our behalf, all of us are full of doubts, right? Every single one of us wonders if this could possibly be true. And I think for some of us, we think more links in the chain are breakable than others. We have problems with certain pieces of this unbreakable chain of salvation. I think for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, it's justification, It's the idea that I really am truly converted. I know that Jesus says it's unbreakable, but at least in my life, it feels like an unbreakable link in the chain, because I'm not sure if this has really happened. I mean, am I truly converted? Did I really do this? Have I been justified? I know I I prayed the prayer, and I walked the aisle, and I talked with my counselor in summer camp, and and I did this, but did I really, really in the bottom of my heart mean it when I did that? Have I truly been justified? Or is there some way in which I need to repray, rededicate, rebaptize my way back into peace with God? Have I been justified? Others of us, it's not justification. We totally, completely understand that we've been converted. It's sanctification. I now wonder in this process, now that I've already been converted, have I lost what I had? Was I set off on this wonderful trajectory as a new believer and everything was so fresh and lively in my life, but I've lost that. I've fumbled that. I've stumbled in this Christian life and I'm wondering if Jesus is sitting on the sidelines wondering if maybe I should give up my seat in the kingdom for somebody who's going to lead a less mediocre Christian life. I wonder about my sanctification and if I'm still in what I joined. For others of us, it might not be those two. It might actually be our glorification. We're doing this, we're living this, but we kind of wonder in the back of our minds, is Jesus gonna be true to his word? I mean, if I do this, if I really lay down my life and take up my cross, I really live a life by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, will I then find out on judgment day that there was something else that Jesus wanted from me? Am I missing something if I live a life completely by faith? Those are huge questions related to these three links in the chain of salvation. Those are very valid questions that we need to wrestle with and talk with others about. I'm just not going to give a single minute of this morning to those questions when we have a passage like Hebrews chapter 2 in our hands. This is such a passage of assurance, we can't even begin to entertain those questions for this very reason. There's another way to look at this. We can feel like this hemming and hawing and doubting and wondering is a great act of self-deference. Woe to me! woe to my faith, woe to how little it is, woe to how little I try in the Christian life, woe to the measure of my holiness. It feels like great humility and self-deference. But after you read a passage like this, there's another angle to see that's not self-deference, that's self-centeredness. You just put yourself as an indelible link in a chain that Jesus says he's already been building without you. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is going to accomplish. This is what Jesus wins. And to place yourself as a crucial component of that chain is to not understand what he's saying in this work of salvation. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus finishes what he starts. Jesus, Hebrews 2 says, is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. He's the one who endures the incarnation, his death and resurrection. He's the one who becomes a merciful and faithful high priest perfected through suffering. He's the one who makes propitiation for sins, who adopts us into his family, who calls us siblings, who destroys the work of the devil, who delivers us from slavery, who helps us in times of need, and meets us in absolutely every single temptation we endure he does all of those things i tell you that there is no possible scenario in which jesus appears before his father on the last day empty handed He looks behind himself and he says, gee, Father, I thought we had all these people that we were going to bring into the kingdom, but I guess the chain broke, you know? I mean, Jimmy, he's been prone to wander. We've got Susie over here who has always struggled with doubt in her Christian life. We've got Billy who just never got over his sin of greed and what we had been talking about from before the foundations of the world that we will bring many sons and daughters to glory. I guess that's just not gonna happen this time around. There is no scenario in which that can happen. That is not even possible. That's not even up for discussion in Hebrews chapter 2. What Jesus starts, he is going to finish. And this passage is like a stake in the ground for him to say, I will bring my sons and my daughters to glory. I'm going to do it. You can bank on that. Let's pray together. Father, we tremble in the presence of these promises. We We're just so quick to want to fit ourselves into the equation and to wonder if when Jesus says many sons and daughters, he's referring to me or to not to me because I feel like I play so big a part in this or I at least feel like other people play a better part than I do. I pray that you would just silence the lies from the evil one. I pray that today and in this moment and with this passage, we would rest in the assurance that you who begin a good work you're going to bring it to completion. You can do that because the entire cosmos is made by you and exists for you and you will do what you set out to do. Let us believe that, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.